0: Voyage.
1: Hey, listeners, I want to tell you about a new show just released on Voyage Media called Conversations with Men I Wish I Never Had. This is a podcast where former Master Mariner and Navy Lieutenant Commander Adina Grundy has candid, raw, cathartic, and often surprisingly funny conversations with women about their experiences in traditionally male-dominated fields like the Navy, the Merchant Marine, and police force. These are the types of conversations that you might only privately have with your girlfriends, but we are sharing them for you to listen to. If you're someone who has ever had an experience working as a woman in a male-dominated field, we think you will find a lot to relate to and commiserate with. Be prepared to laugh, cry, and be entertained. The first couple of episodes are already available, and we will be releasing new episodes every week. Check out Conversations With Man, I Wish I Never Had where you get your podcasts. I am so excited to share with you my interview with Dr. Daniel Rosen, a bariatric surgeon and obesity medicine expert. He tackles modern medicine's biased approach to obesity care and the risks of lower cost medical tourism. He talks through all the pros and cons of each of the surgical options and answers so many questions about weight loss surgery. Here we go. Hi, Dr. Rosen. Thank you so much for joining me. Hey, Dr. Joy. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. So we're going to jump right in. The first thing that I wanted to hear from you is to clarify for me, for my listeners, for our viewers on social media about what is going on now we understand obesity is a disease. Can you tell me briefly what that's about?
0: Yeah, finally, right? Only until recently has the American Medical Association and all of the government agencies accepted obesity as a true code, a medical diagnosis that qualifies for care and for procedural reimbursement and things like that. Before that, you had to really piggyback all of the other medical conditions that we frequently saw with obese people. But if you were just obese, then it was considered not a disease. It was considered you know, a weakness of will or a lazy disposition or an inability to control yourself. It was really Subconsciously loaded with blame and a shift of responsibility from the clinician whose job it is to help people with their disease states onto the patient. And it perpetuated all of medicine from the very top, from the people who sort of decide what gets coded as a disease down to the doctor who would say, Well, I noticed you didn't lose any weight since your last visit. What you really need to do is try harder to eat healthy and exercise more. So so it was like a complete responsibility shift onto the patient who has none of the tools to deal with this disease because diet and exercise alone has a 95% failure rate at one year, a 99% failure rate at five years in terms of being able to control this chronic disease. It's a great thing that it's being recognized. I think the spread of social media has really helped a lot to open people's eyes. We have a long way to go though.
1: Yeah, a long way to go. Lots of advocacy and conversations like this, I think. So just to give you briefly about me, I um, began to gain weight about 19 years old. And then by the time I had my first kid after that, I was obese and have been ever since. I've lost tons of weight countless times, always gained it all back, including the last time 80 pounds in 2015. That was like sheer will and starvation. Mm-hmm gained it all back. My highest weight was 337 pounds as of last September. Unfortunately, my weight loss with Monjaro has really slowed. I'm really stalled. I'm not losing much more. I can't seem to move it. And I've begun to get rashes at the injection site. At 12.5 milligrams, I started getting rashes at 15 milligrams. I now have gastrointestinal problems that are really not manageable. So I'm waiting for my pharmacy to get in stock. The doctor called back in 10 milligrams for me because that was a dose that seemed to be working. I'm hopeful that that will get me back to a comfortable place, but I'm worried that the the side effect symptoms like horse might be out of the barn and I'm not sure we can call them back by lowering the dose. We'll see. I'm pretty sure that I still want to have bariatric surgery. I feel that I'm not willing to trust pharmaceutical companies and or insurance companies with my health and that's what would be required. I don't mind taking a medication for the rest of my life if that's what I have to do but the problem is pharmaceutical companies and insurance companies don't have a great track record in my mind of promising me safety and or coverage. So if I can just have surgery and then one day if I need medication in a few years to help me like maintain or whatever, because I know that the surgery isn't a permanent forever thing either. Maybe there'll be more options, more years of history with it.
0: You are the perfect example of the modern patient dealing with obesity with like full expectations, understanding of what we have available in our arsenal to sort of use the GLP-1 medications to lose weight to understand that there's a limit that those medications can provide that many people will need bariatric surgery to achieve a more significant weight loss profile that medications may be needed down the road after weight loss surgery that's the whole thing you know that's you're right up to date with where things are going
1: thanks um i appreciate it. i've kind of dove into all of this and i also think that i represent obese people in that If willpower was the key, then I would be my goal weight and I would have had an entire adult wonderful life at a healthy weight because I got my doctorate as a single mom with four kids. I run a nonprofit in the addiction field. Like I spend my life helping people with impossible problems, right? Or seemingly impossible problems. If this was a seemingly impossible problem that had a practical solution that I could have done on my own, I would have. I have resources. I have health insurance, like there's no reason why. And I'll be honest, like my diet has sort of changed over the years, but I've never been a fast food person. I've never been a person, who I I don't have binge eating disorder, which is often a contributing thing. I was an emotional eater and I eat more sugar maybe than a thin person, but not enough to justify 337 pound weight maintenance. Something else is going on. And then when I began to take Moundaro and the food noise stopped, I was like, 100% this hasn't been my fault. Like my brain is different than my thin friend's brain. So bariatric surgery. I'm mostly focused in on either gastric bypass or the gastric sleeve.
0: Most patients, a sleeve is appropriate for them. You know, the average obese or morbidly obese person, as you get into the higher morbid obesity range, like BMI of 45 plus, 50 plus, 45 to 55 is the magic spot for a gastric bypass, unless you're doing it specifically for diabetes control. Gastric bypass is better than a sleeve for diabetes control enough where like, it might be my first operation, my operation of choice for a bad diabetic. If you're like a new onset diabetic for a couple of years related to your obesity, the sleeve will probably get rid of it. But if you're like a chronic diabetic, then the gastric bypass, the improvement in diabetes resolution offsets the higher risk that comes with the surgery's more technical aspects once you're like a 55 and above then you need the most powerful operations we have which for me is a sleeve with an intestinal bypass on top which i do typically in two stages so you'll get a sleeve to take you from a bmi of 60 let's say like 450 pounds down to 350 and then when you're 350, we would do the bypass operation on top of it, which is called a duodenal switch when combined. And that has amazing diabetes resolution and is the most powerful operation. But to do it all on at one time for someone who's got a BMI of 60 or a BMI a weight of 450, that's a lot of risk and a long operation for someone so heavy. So it's great to like hit them with a sleeve, bring them down 100 pounds plus, And then as soon as they plateau, you know, they're going to regain from there. So you're following them specifically with at their lowest weight, hitting them with the second stage. It's a planned second stage. Sometimes we'll say if you don't need it and you do amazing, you're an outlier, you won't need the second stage. But if you're in those higher weight ranges, a sleeve alone isn't going to cut it. But it's the right first stage. So you're a sleeve if you're at low, you're a bypass in the 45 to 55 range, and a sleeve in the higher ranges as a planned first stage of a two-stage procedure. So... You're not in a BMI over 45 range. Am I correct so. there. I'm at
1: 273 or something like that and 5'6. I so I'm right under that.
0: But yeah, you're like a 43, 44, something like that. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't be thinking of a bypass firsthand. Why are you thinking about having a bypass?
1: So the reason why I've, because originally I was sleeve, sleeve, sleeve. That seems perfect for me. Low risk, quick and easy solution that would work for me. The reason why I'm concerned that I may need to do the bypass is that I've had chronic acid reflux since I was a teenager, and that runs in my family. The complication with having gastric bypass is that I understand that I would never be able to use NSAIDs or like Advil, Motrin, and I also have fibromyalgia, which is under control by not eating sugar substitutes, which is another thing I wanted to touch on with you because those cause flare-ups but I do use anti-inflammatory drugs to help with the fibromyalgia. So I was like, ah, which one, I don't know.
0: This is a perfect situation where someone who has expertise in bariatric surgery is really needed to guide you because you're right. If you have very bad reflux, then a sleeve can make that worse. And a bypass is a great operation to treat reflux. In fact, if you're a BMI over 40 and you have bad reflux, the recommendation is not to get an anti-reflux surgery, but to get a gastric bypass. Because at a higher BMI, like a BMI of 40, the anti-reflux surgeries are less effective. And if you do a bypass, it takes care of the reflux and also will lower your weight, which will help your reflux. It's I wonder actually
1: if my insurance will cover it if it's done for they say they'll cover they'll, it for
0: they'll require you to do all of the same hoops and, and tests that they were, and the six months of weight loss that they require for bariatric surgery even if your indication is reflux with a high BMI, hopefully that will change. You know, I don't have to watch someone for six months to fix their reflux, even though the operation is just as complicated or more complicated than a sleeve. This is part of like the second class citizen situation that you get for obese patients where because it's not equated as a disease in the same way, They put all these things like a site clearance. You don't need to get a site clearance to do a breast reduction. Why do you need to get a site clearance to do bariatric surgery? I'm hoping that, you know, they would put it into the doctor's judgment. Like, this is a patient who has a realistic understanding of what the surgery is, what the outcomes are to be expected. They can have the surgery versus bringing in a third-party psychologist for every single patient. It's just added time, added expense. It's all about creating barriers to care so that they limit their cost exposure from the number of people signing up for the surgery. Back to your point about reflux and the sleeve, a lot of the reflux we see in patients is because they have something called a hiatal hernia. As your belly expands, the pressure inside is higher. That's pushing outwards on your abdominal wall. It's also pushing upwards on your diaphragm and your stomach can begin to migrate up into your chest. About 60% or more of my obese patients who we work up for bariatric surgery have a hiatal hernia and we fix that at the same time that we do the weight loss surgery. And so if you have a hiatal hernia and that's the driver of your reflux and we fix that at the same time we do your sleeve, a lot of patients will have their reflux go away or be like controlled way better to where they can handle a sleeve. The important thing in that equation is do you have a hiatal hernia?
1: I don't. I had an endoscopy not that long ago and I don't. My insurance company would cover a gastric bypass if I did, but I don't. You don't have a hiatal hernia. I didn't at least, um, well, it was actually longer ago than I thought. It was about a year and a half ago. But you don't need a hiatal hernia to prove reflux. Have
0: -hmm. you had an ACID study, a Bravo study to look at what your pH in the esophagus is? Did they do a biopsy of the bottom of your esophagus to show exposure to acid signs of reflux? I mean, if you have a pathologic diagnosis of reflux and your BMI is over 40, then that would be a reason to cover it. You don't need the hiatal hernia. Hiatal hernia is an anatomic issue, but gastroesophageal reflux disease is a diagnosis that can be made outside the setting of a hiatal hernia. So that's still an avenue for you as far as I'm concerned. You should get the pathology from your endoscopy to see if there's cellular changes consistent with reflux. You also can get a pH study, which is a probe left in the bottom of your esophagus. It's not the most pleasant study, but they actually have ones that you can clip on and leave so you don't have like a tube down your nose measuring for 12 hours. If those measurements show acid exposure, that can be confirmatory of reflux disease. So if your insurance requires reflux plus a certain BMI to qualify for a gastric bypass, you can establish that without the presence of a hiatal hernia, and that would be the right indication for a gastric bypass.
1: Even if I go the Mexico route, which I wanted to talk to you about, I know you're, I know the, I know the risks, um, but I want to hear them from you for my viewers and listeners. Like, let's just pretend I did that gastric bypass would be the one for me, which makes Mexico less realistic because they're like popping out sleeves, like babies over there. Like everyone's getting a sleeve in Mexico, but they're not talking about gastric bypass in Mexico because it's a more complicated surgery. I assume
0: more complicated, more costly, and uh, takes longer. And if you're trying to optimize your bottom line, you'd want to just do sleeves because they bring on less risk and less complications and can be done quicker. And they take a less skilled surgeon to accomplish safely. So for a lot of reasons from a strictly business perspective, I would imagine that they were mostly marketing for sleeve. I have my concerns about medical tourism and people going for surgery. Not only is there risks of complications, and I'm not gonna say American surgeons are better than Mexican surgeons, but I think there's, a, in general, a degree of oversight and regulation to healthcare in the US that exceeds that of Mexico. Level of training you know, can be more easily verified because you know the landscape that you would have to explore to verify a surgeon's training. I don't know if you could really verify something if you just show up from a plane trip down to Mexico and this guy's like, hi, I'm your surgeon, nice to meet you. I would be worried about things like training level and experience. I think complications can come up the next day. They can come up a week later. I think you're in a disadvantageous situation if you have to manage a complication in America from a surgery that happened in Mexico. First of all, no surgeon is gonna touch you. Like we don't like to take care of other people's complications. We don't like to take care of our own complications. We don't want to have them. If someone else gets a complication, we inherently want like them to deal with their problem. You know, that's just sort of like a natural inclination as a surgeon speaking, like I get irritated having to deal with someone else's complication. There's also going to be a lot of judgment that you're going to have to take on as like, oh, this person went somewhere else to get their surgery. And now they expect me to bail them out. All of this stuff, as great as doctors we are we're subject to human emotions we try not to let them impact our care but they're still there in some way also there's the safety of the travel i mean there was just in the news two people died and one is critically injured and another was shot but is not critically injured because they were mistaken for drug smugglers um in some mexican cartels territory yeah they were surgical tourists and they got killed here so in a lot new orleans
1: tourists- the, the cash price here in my medical group that runs our whole city is $22,000 for a sleeve. And I can't yeah. even imagine what the gastric bypass price is going to be.
0: Yeah, I could tell you my price is more expensive in New York City.
1: But so I, like, I don't have $22,000. And for my own health and survival, I need this surgery. So I don't know what to what does someone like me do?
0: Well, I think, you know, you got to prioritize this investment in your health and your future. You know, if someone said you needed to get a car and you could, would figure out a way to scrape together the down payment and then pay the rest off in installments, you know, they have the that possibility for medical procedures, care credit, prosper health, all types of third party um, lenders that lend people money who have good credit, who qualify for a procedure and for some reason, choose or need to pay for it out of pocket. And I've never had a patient say that they regretted that spend. Yeah, I've only had people say the only thing they regretted is that they didn't do it sooner.
1: That's what I hear all the time from friends who've had bariatric surgery. I've never heard a person say, maybe except for outside of like the first week where they feel so miserable and they can't believe that they're in this situation where they're like, oh God, maybe I shouldn't have done this. People say they do not regret it at all. And I know for me, I I made a series, a video series of 100 reasons to lose over 100 pounds that have nothing to do with diet culture or beauty standards. And those reasons are so core to just quality of life. I had fully accepted that I was going to live in this fat body for the rest of my life. And then I had an episode where I had to care for my 92-year-old. Now she's 93 uh grandmother and if she had been 337 pounds like me we wouldn't have been able to keep her at home she wouldn't be alive but if she were we wouldn't be able to care for her by ourselves
0: yeah she wouldn't be 90 that's for sure
1: and getting realistic about that took a whole lot of self-love like i don't have a great answer like i feel so frustrated by the american healthcare system like my insurance company I have Cadillac insurance, they call it, but we're a, and I'm in charge of who what our plan is because I'm the CEO. But we can we don't have the option of even purchasing a plan that covers bariatric surgery because we only have 22 people in our group.
0: It's just really unfortunate. It's unfortunate that you can't appeal. To somebody else, I mean, to someone in the in the administration of that plan, because if someone had a spine and spine condition because of their arthritis, you know, and they needed to get a spine surgery, that would cost more than than your surgery would, right? And they approve it. So why are they picking this specific indication?
1: They say that it's because it doesn't work in the long term. That's their answer. I ask.
0: There are tons of studies that you could provide that says that cardiovascular risk over time declines that there's health care cost benefits that are recouped within five years. The wow. cost of the surgery is recouped within five years from decreased medication expenses, avoidance of future health consequences mm-hmm. like the need to get your gallbladder out, the need to have cardiovascular surgery, avoidance of strokes, uh, resolution of sleep apnea. All those things confer tremendous health benefits that save them money in the long run. Not only does it work long term, very few patients regain a majority of their weight back over time. Certainly less than 50 percent. And how many surgeries have a 50 percent failure rate? How many knee replacements need to get re-replaced 10 years later? Plenty. It doesn't remove the benefit of that surgery for that person in that moment. The logic is very faulty. I have a lot of feelings about insurance companies in general that they're just trying to, like, screw patients over, improve their bottom line at all costs. I think that's in some ways in play here, but I I feel for you. I I would work really hard to get that gastric bypass approved because of the indication. There's tons of medical societies that recommend for BMI-40 with diagnosed reflux disease, which I'm sure you can get either by looking at the pathology, by doing a pH study. In that setting, the recommended anti-reflux surgery is a gastric bypass. You can pull dozens of papers that say that explicitly in black and white, send that to them and get approved.
1: Well, that gives me some hope and some direction. Do you know off the top, because I don't have access to um, academic medical studies, like I'm not, I don't think I'm in my university's database anymore for um, being able to access the studies, but do you know where I could go for a resource to, to show these studies and present them in my appeal?
0: Sure. I would start at Google Scholar. Google Scholar is a great resource search terms like gastroesophageal reflux disease, morbid obesity, gastric bypass, surgical treatment. Those are the things I I would look for um, the American Society of Metabolic and Bariatric Surgery, ASMBS. I believe they have a position statement on the surgical treatment of gastroesophageal reflux disease in the obese patient. That concludes basically what we're saying. Sages, S-A-G-E-S is the Society of American Gastrointestinal Endoscopic Surgeons. They have a similar position, paper, and statement. So those would be the two main societies where you could get documentation that medical professionals and societies are recommending this specific treatment in this specific setting. Appeal, 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 appeal. Don't give up.
1: For gastric bypass, is it true that I would not ever be able to take another Advil ibuprofen, so I have to find another way to manage fibromyalgia?
0: That's not entirely true, and the same applies to a sleeve. The reason you don't want to have NSAIDs is because they can erode the lining if they kind of stay for a long period of time. And Sometimes with bariatric surgery, you have some stasis or, or food can sit there or pills can sit there. So if you had a band on the top of the stomach and food sort of sat above the band and you had a pill, an NSAID pill sitting on the mucosa, it can kind of cause an ulcer if it's sitting there for a long time. A sleeve tends to empty better, but in general, we recommend avoiding NSAIDs after any bariatric surgery. For a gastric bypass, it can sit where the stomach is connected to the intestine. And that can cause an ulcer, sometimes called a marginal ulcer because it's at the margin where the stomach meets the intestine. You can, in truth, have NSAIDs if they are critical to your disease management. For fibromyalgia, if you have to be on it, what you would want is you would want something that it has an enteric coating, which means that the medication is coated with something that would prevent exposure of the medication inside until it's passed into the intestines. And they make that enteric coated ibuprofen and things like that. So that's one thing you could do. And then just having it with food. So as to sort of dilute out the effects as it's passing through the system, and then just being on the lookout for ulcer symptoms and looking into that and exploring whether you have an ulcer early rather than later. That's how I'd manage that.
1: I know your time is short. I have one last question, if if that's okay. Yeah, of course. My question is I understand with the sleeve that the part of the stomach that produces, or part of the stomach that produces the hunger hormone, ghrelin or others, um, is removed. How does gastric bypass manage the cravings, feelings of starvation or hunger, and the hormonal parts that we know cause obesity?
0: You don't really see the ghrelin changes with a gastric bypass that you do with the sleeve. The studies have been kind of all over the map. In that, you know, the part of the stomach that makes ghrelin is sort of disconnected with food. So the question was, like, does that part of the stomach think it's not eating anything and the ghrelin gets higher? Or is there other mechanisms that are negatively inhibiting the ghrelin through sort of an indirect mechanism? So there isn't a clear answer about ghrelin and gastric bypass. The fullness that you experience after a gastric bypass is primarily caused by the hindgut hormones like GLP-1 that all these medications are predicated on. You take a medication like Mount which has GIP and GLP-1, a GIP agonist and a GLP-1 agonist. They mimic GIP and GLP-1. And the way they came up with that hormone was by reverse engineering a gastric bypass. Mm. So what they did was they saw that gastric bypass patients before they lost any weight, were able to completely come off their insulin and their other diabetes medications before they left the hospital. So they said, oh, this isn't strictly weight related. How could they, their diabetes go away right away? And so then they began to study and they found that because the food goes straight to the middle of the intestine, you know, you're bypassing the first half of the intestine, you're connecting, say, the 50 yard line of your 100 yards of intestine right to the stomach. So the food goes to the 50 and might get to the 80, whereas normally it might start at the one and get to the 50. Now the cells that line the end of the intestine, they're not used to seeing formed food. So when you overeat and you kind of overload the system, like Thanksgiving dinner, you get that like push yourself away from the table, I can't eat anymore, there's food up to my neck feeling there is no food in your neck. Like that's your brain creating an intense aversion to eating another bite because the food has reached the end of the line. You've overloaded the system, whereas normally you would have absorbed everything in the first half, first two thirds. Now food's entering the end of the line. The body doesn't want to lose any calories. So it's telling you, it's sending a shutoff signal to the input. And that's what was happening when people ate small amounts after a gastric bypass, because they would get that upregulation even though they didn't eat a big meal because the food starts at the 50 and it didn't have the stomach to mechanically break it down as much as effectively, more horn food would hit the end of the intestines. They would get a strong fullness signal and they would, wouldn't eat much. And they reverse engineered those hormones. And so this whole GLP-1 medication craze is a direct consequence of the basic science research they did around gastric bypass and how it worked. GLP-1 and peptide YY is the other hindgut hormone that get activated after a gastric bypass. So it's not ghrelin-mediated weight loss as much. A sleeve, in contrast, would have a strong ghrelin component, but would also have hindgut activation because the food isn't as mechanically processed by a sleeve. Sleeve really just acts as a tubular conduit. It doesn't have the crushing and grinding capacity that an intact stomach does. So you'll still get food. Less broken down, less surface area for enzyme interaction. More of it makes it downstream and stimulates these hind gut hormones. But maximal hind gut hormone activation with a gastric bypass, maximal ghrelin decrease, and impact on your hunger with a sleeve.
1: You've just blown my mind. No one, I've, in all of my Mount videos I've seen, and all of the surgery videos I've never seen anyone explain why you get so full so fast, other than like. We just assume that it's because the stomach is smaller or whatever. But the the you said it's like an imaginary thing. It's a brain thing, not a real stomach thing.
0: Fullness is a brain thing. You know, you fill it up, your esophagus stretches, it tells your brain. I think you're in a really exciting place, Dr. Chush. I think you have a path forward. I think you understand the landscape beautifully. I think you're in a position to be extremely successful. Obviously, you're already successful in so many aspects of your life. I think there's a path forward for you. I'm really curious to see how it works out.
1: Well, we'll, I'll be putting it on TikTok, so (laughs) I'll definitely see you there.
0: (laughs) Great to talk to you.
1: You too. Thank you so much. I think you're going to help a lot of people just explaining these things. I hope to reach the people who need to hear it.
0: Yeah, and they can follow me too.
1: Yeah, let us know where to find you.
0: Dr. Daniel Rosen.
1: Okay. Yeah, follow Daniel Rosen. He's pretty great. I love the way he talks about obesity with so much compassion and information. So thank you. Take care. All right, bye-bye. On our next episode, I'm talking to my friend Crystal, a fellow therapist who has recently had weight loss surgery. You will hear all about how surgery changes your life, including what it's like to go out to eat, how it changes your relationship with food, what the surgery and recovery are like, and how self-love saves the day. That's next time on The Easy Way Out. The Easy Way Out is a production of Voyage Media. The series is produced by me, Dr. Joy Bracey, Nat Mundell, and Dan Benamore. Samantha Barofaldi is our technical producer and editor. Our theme music is by Durlis Gonzalez. You can find my self-love and weight loss content on social media at Dr. Joy Bracey at D-R-J-O-Y-B-R-A-C-E-Y. If you are enjoying this podcast, you can support it by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you're listening, by subscribing for future episodes, and by sharing with your friends. I'm not a medical doctor, and nothing in this podcast should be taken as medical advice or as mental health counseling or advice. These are my personal experiences and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Voyage Media. Thank you for listening.